During this time of uncertainty and self-isolation, shelter at home and other extreme measures, many small game companies need your help. To my knowledge, the following companies are still accepting and shipping miniatures to the community. Bad Squiddo Games, Pico Armor, Bacchus 6mm, and the guest for this episode, Lon Weiss of Brigade Games. Of course, you can always buy PDFs of game rules from the following companies. Cladius Publications, Two Fat Lardies, Greg Wagman of Little Wars TV, Sam Mustafa, and again, Brigade Games, the guest of the show. Links for all these companies are in the show notes. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This episode, number 58, we are speaking with Lon Weiss, headman at Brigade Games, a North American distributor for many, many game products. Lon, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, to, to say I've been wanting to talk to you for some time would be an understatement. Uh, we did meet uh, face-to-face even one time at Fall In. Uh, in Lancaster, gosh, that was what twenty sixteen or seventeen, I think. Sounds right. Yeah, as you, as we get older, you know, all those years merge together. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I gotta say, I was very impressed with the stand that you had at the time. I can imagine that in the years that have that have uh, gone past, you've only increased your stock and your offerings and and we'll get into that a little bit later but uh first i have to ask the question that i ask all my guests the first time they're on what makes you a veteran wargamer well you know i i wouldn't uh, even though i'm a wargamer these days um and obviously a manufacturer and distributor and lots of other things i um i've been doing this since with toy soldiers since probably age 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. Um, I started with uh, Napoleonics. Um, I got hooked as soon as the, I saw the uh, Dino De Laurentiis Waterloo movie. Mm. Um, my younger brother um, is four years younger than me. And I convinced him to be the British and I was going to be the French. And we went out to the local hobby store, which existed at the time. Um, and by the way, they sold boats at, at boats and sporting gear at the same time on the other side of the store. Um, but went and, went and uh, bought some um, Airfix models and plastic models, and you know the whole rubber band and uh, evolved to marbles and mm-hmm. painting and putting the things together. And then I bought um, you know a, 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 a mil- uh, it was um, Gene McCoy's. Uh, magazine is it military digest or mm-hmm. um, in any case i bought bought that magazine and in the back of the magazine was um uh, a minifigs ad okay and I was like oh my god there's this whole other world of things and there was articles about wargaming in it and so i went and um ordered some um some pro you know got a catalog ordered some product and, you know, back in those days, it took anywhere from 30 days to a month to receive anything you ordered by mail. Mm-hmm. And um, lo and behold, in a manila envelope came this uh, small little, um, almost like a matchbox car sized box um, or several boxes. I don't remember if it was one or several. And, um, you know, un, you know, white, black and gray cardboard printed and just jammed inside without any worry of bending or anything was all of the figures that I had bought. And you bought many figs individually at the time. And at the time mm. I, I, I bought 25 millimeter Yeah, and uh, learned to paint, did start doing research. And that's how I got started. And that was, that's what makes me a veteran war gamer. I've, I've been doing this and collecting books and um, to my wife's dismay, uh, dismay <laughs> and uh and um you know and figures all this time and uh it's been you know it's been since i like said a very long time for me since i've been 11 or 12 i'm 56 now wow um brigade games is 20 years old this year oh wow (laughs) 
So yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. And, and as, as you have gone forward, I'm sure that's, you've done more than just that. Right. And cause well, you're sure. early, early teens, you have, you probably, you know, evolved into proper war games. What, what was your first proper war game? Actually, the first proper war game I probably played in was probably, I'm guessing, about 23 years ago. So mm-hmm. it was a long time between, actually, I used to collect rules. I used to read them. I used to you know play simulations myself because um, I didn't realize that there was this whole huge community out there with, that was starting with um, conventions and, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and game clubs and things like that. And, um, of course, when it, you know, went away from the hobby during the college years to mm-hmm. the time I got married, which, you know, which was, you know, my mid twenties. Um, and then once I started having, uh, children started to settle down and, and, you know, as far as getting, you know, a hobby back and going back to the hobby, I still had books. I still have some of the first miniatures I ever painted, which were, you know, um, metal miniatures, which are minifigs. Um, my mom was always amazed that I could paint the eyes on the things and, um, but painting and doing the research was always a favorite of mine. Um, and still is to this day. Oh, great. Great. So you go through, go through life, you get away from the hobby for a little bit, come back to it. How, I guess, I guess that's a great place to transition to where did brigade games come from well i you know i have four kids my oldest is a daughter my my second and through fourth ones are all boys Uh, my daughter you know i wasn't going to try at that time to indoctrinate her into into war gaming i didn't think i would be successful um and when my son came along, I was like, well, you know, when I, when he gets old enough, I'm going to introduce him to, um, you know, to gaming and, you know, and collecting and, and painting um, as a hobby. And um, when he got to, I want to say he was probably about five. Um, I, I went mm-hmm. and I and, and I started to buy some, you know, I saw at one of the conventions, I saw somebody was selling Flintlock. And if those, for those of you who don't know what Flintlock is, it's basically, it, I didn't realize it was an older game at the time, but it was basically put out by a company called, called Elect, uh, Alternative Armies out in England. And um, basically, mm-hmm. or I should say the United Kingdom, because I think if I remember correctly, they're from Scotland. So they, you know, got to be careful of mm. that. Um, but basically, um, they were, they were, um, interesting figures because they were basically elf elves and orcs and dwarves and stuff but basically they had them all as different factions in the napoleonic wars and since i one of my loves was always napoleonics i said oh what a great way to get my my son involved in in painting something that he might you know eventually you know be you know be interested in orcs and dwarves and things like that um rather than stodgy stodgy um you know historical stuff so I figured I'd start him on that and I'd eventually corrupt him and get him into historical gaming. And so we started painting figures, was collecting things. And of course, the way I was, I just, I didn't do anything small. I wound up buying more and more and more. And um, he loved it. And um, again, he was, he, he was younger and he started, you know, doing more and more. He got up to a point where I think we were probably about, a year and a half in and um one day i got a i got an email from the people at elector or or alternative armies they eventually became elector and um said um did you just put an order in for and i don't remember what it was 400 500 dollars worth of product and is this your order and he went down the list the list of items and i said yes except for those two items at the bottom and he said, hmm, he goes, the distributor you're dealing with basically down in Texas is um, you're basically his entire business. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at the time I had been going to conventions and, you know, I would go to conventions. I would book a room 
Um, but it was basically once my daughter and my son got old enough um, that that my my wife could handle the two of them by herself. And and we would I would go and stay overnight at the conventions, the the HMGS conventions like uh, Historic on a Fallen. And I haven't. It took me a while to do Cold Wars, but basically, just to go to the and shop, and then walk around the game room and, and game, or and watch mm-hmm. the games. I never gamed for even even during that time, and um, and it was uh, an interesting thing to do. I wound up getting, like I said, he gave me an opportunity. He said, would you be interested in, in, in selling our product there? Because we're not getting any orders from this other guy. And we think that you might, you know, since you have a love for the game, you might, you might be the perfect person. Mm. That's basically how I started. And I started basically, I want to say it was 1999 in November. Um, I believe it was November. It was the first Fallen. Okay. And that was my first show. Oh wow! And I had, I think I had one table, and the 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 people um, that were the dealer managers um, actually assisted me, and um, you know, as far and and I don't know if you know Jeff and Monica Hobbs of Harmony House Hobbies, they sell the dice and accessories at, at all the HMGS conventions. Okay. Yeah. And um, Jeff Jeff and I became friends because he he loved Flintlock too. That's actually how we got connected and mm-hmm. um and it just took off from there and so i was de- and that was my first product line I, I and then um i heard all the bad things about about elector over the or um alternative armies over the years about how they had gone bankrupt they had changed to elector i think i was right in the middle of when they were switching and you know even the original author of, of flintlock reached out to me and said be careful be careful be careful mm-hmm. and i and you know the, they they don't have a great reputation. They're going to wind up doing something that that will not be in your favor. And um, the recession hit, and my business basically went went from being pretty darn good to almost nil over the course of a couple months. And they weren't happy with that and didn't understand that, and um, wound up deciding and I had an exclusive arrangement deciding to go and attempt to try to have somebody else uh, represent them uh, because more than one they were going to go to every state and I would told them I said it violates our agreement and um, if they did that I would not order anymore and it would be I would be done Mm -hmm. and that's that's how we parted ways Um, and meanwhile I had like I said, I had probably resuscitated Flintlock and, and they had a, a mass battles game called Slaughterloo to a point that um, I was selling probably five or six times the amount that somebody else was, the, the previous guy was selling. Right. And right. at that point, I decided that, okay, I'm going to pull in some additional ranges. And, it, and the, the, the next one was, um, was uh, I can't remember if it was Black Tree or Eureka first, but I think it was Black Tree. And that's how I got to meet Nick of North Star mm-hmm. of, of of North Star because Nick at the time was Black Trees, which was it was Black Tree, and before it was Black Tree, it was Icon. Um, before it was Icon, it was Harlequin. Um, but that, but Nick had been their trade manager, and that's how Nick and I got along. We got along really well. Um, I was selling their World War II line, which was at the time was very small and they kept adding to it almost every month. And they were, and I was selling, I was selling so much of that. It was ridiculous. It was like, I was, I was selling 5,000 wholesale a month um, in that, in that range back then. Um, And um, they, you know, at, at one point Foundry started to send out these emails um, marketing emails to basically do, you know, sales every, you know, sales every, every month on a line or something like, you know, a different range. And then they were doing also a bunch of different, different promotions for different ranges. And that's when Mike Owen and, um, uh, Mark Cobblestone and Mark Sims were all, and some of the other, the other premier sculptors were all, were all there at the time. Okay, they were all you know. There was this crew of younger guys, basically uh, under the tutelage of, of, um, of um, 
Mark Copplestone and um, obviously um, one of you know one of the other people that were the people that were there were the Perry brothers, right? Right. right? And um, what happened was is that um, I was dealing with 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 uh, Black, Nick at Black Tree, and I started to complain to Nick saying, "What is going on with these emails going out?" And he goes, "I have nothing to do with it. I can only tell you." that um, you know they're they're basically hurting for sales and they're going to basically be putting at least one line on on sale every month I'll put you in touch with um, the owner and you know and you guys can discuss this but I said he said it's not my doing and um, you know I was between I was also selling the Zulu war range because those were two ranges that were I thought were popular and they or would be popular and would be easy for me to easy for me to, to work on selling and and I did really well with both of them and um, I talked to the owner and because and I said to him I said listen if I what I don't understand is you guys ship me ship me that much product in a month and it's primarily World War two and the, the day I you guys stick it in the mail to me and we used to have everything was express carried just like it is today where it comes in a couple days and basically um the when once you guys ship it i said the email goes out and you're putting everything at 40 percent off and i said and you're marketing to my customers in the in the us i mm-hmm. said how do you think that that's gonna what do you think that's gonna do to my business and he says well you know our range is so big we have to put something on sale every month and I said, okay, well, you get you got one or two shots. I said, left. I said, if you do it again, I said, I'm, I'm really at this point, I'm just going to, I'll drop the line. And I had picked up Eureka at the time, and I was doing really well with Eureka as well. And um, he did it again the next month, the same thing. <laughs> and they, basically, I said, all right, that's enough. I said, I, I, I'm i done. Um, Nick was on his way out of the business, um, I believe right at the end, he was going to start as he was leaving and he was starting North Star. Um, so Nick left and during this time, then basically what was going on was also is that Foundry fell apart with the, with the distributors or excuse me, with the, with the sculptors. And, um, there was some internal strife there where all of the, those, all of the sculptors basically left. And um, because I, I reached out to Mike Owen, uh, who eventually became Artisan Designs, and I reached out to Mark Sims, who eventually became Crusader. And I reached out um, to Copplestone, although Copplestone had an arrangement al- already. Uh, once he started, had an arrangement with um, somebody else in the U.S. And all the arrangements were always exclusive. So I offered to be their North American distributors, and once they set their businesses up, I, that's how I started with Artisan and Crusader. Mm-hmm. I did the same thing when Renegade came on the scene, and Renegade was run by a bunch of um, guys who had not been in the in, in the industry before, from what I understand. Um, except that I think they may have worked at a game workshop or something early in their early in their lives, and they decided that they were going to start with ECW, and um, they ignored me for about six months, and uh, eventually I became per, uh, you know so persistent, and one of the reasons was is that they couldn't keep the they couldn't they couldn't keep the uh, English Civil War range which which was their first range in stock. Um, and, or make it fast enough. And um, eventually they, they, you know, we, we, we cut a deal and they decided that, and I was telling them, I said, you need to come out with, with, with things on a, on a monthly basis because what's going on is it's taking you, you know, three, four months to put out a new product. And what's going on is, is that basically sales go, go up and down and up and down. It looked like a, a giant um, sine wave. And, um, you need to even that out. And they didn't agree with me and they decided to go into American Civil War. And they got into that range and what had happened with that range? That range wound up uh, not doing really well. They went back to ECW and it did really, really well again. <laughs> and then they decided to take a turn into World War I. Um, and um, that, was, that did really well. And then I, I decided I, they weren't going to do late war stuff and I, you know, late war, war, World War One items. And I, um, I said to him, I said, would you like to, I just, I had seen the Lost Battalion. 
And I said, would you like to do the Germans on the Wasp, you know, for late war and I'll do the Americans. And they said, sure. So it was about two months before Historicon, the, the year that I came out with those, with that, with the, my World War One range, which by the way, was sculpted by Mike Owen of Artisan. Um, and I basically said to them, I said, all right, where's your Germans? And they said, what Germans? So here I had Americans sculpted, a couple packs of Americans sculpted, no Germans to basically match up against. And I, and I had to basically uh, ask Mike to, very nicely if he could whip out, you know, a couple packs of Germans for me to start with. And that's how I started World War One, and that's how I got involved with Mike Owen sculpting all my, uh, you know, my uh, my World War One range. He did most of the range except for Paul Hicks doing doing the um, Austrians and the Italians, and a few additions to the French, a few additions to the Germans, um, some artillery, some some uh, mortars and things like that. And um, it's you know, and that was my first. I want to say my first real range. Um, I, you know, there, there have been many things over the years that have, you know, that I've, that I've created. Um, there are some things that, that to this day still have not done very well that I've created and I'll never understand why it's one of those things with ranges that you never ever can predict. Um, there are some that like uh, that I was really scared about. One of the first ranges that I did with with Paul Hicks, um, uh, which was not just a few packs. I think we did like five or six packs right away. So it was a it was thousands and thousands of dollars of investment, and for me at the time that was a very very you know. In, you know, a very, very um, large investment to make and gamble to make. And it was the Musketeers and Swashbucklers range. Mm -hmm. And, and um, we both didn't know how popular it was going to be. And then, because there was no movie supporting it at the time. There was no movie that was out. There was no, you know, it wasn't like it was really super popular uh, period. Um, it was just different. Um, you know, who doesn't like swashbuckling and sword fighting? And, right. um, all of us, you know, I go and I, I, we, re I release it and, um, I think we broke even in two weeks, which mm -hmm. was for me, was just like, oh my God, I can't believe that actually happened. <laughs> and, um, it was, it was a great feeling, you know, and there are some lines that I have, I have, you know, I have some things, you know, in the, uh, some, some, uh, science fiction stuff, those figures, I don't think I'll ever break even. <laughs> I'm not sure why. There's some. There's some really nice figures. Um, there are other ranges which you know. Sometimes a range takes a month to break even. Sometimes it takes a couple of weeks. Sometimes it takes a couple of years. You know, and the whole point of um, you know of of, of doing a range uh, is that if you invent something, you know yourself, like um, a fantasy range that doesn't have you know, I, I it doesn't have I uh, uh, a historic or doesn't have, it's not historical, so anybody can go and make it. You then own the IP to that, and if you if you come across on a, with a concept that's really really good, then you can potentially get um, you know thousands and thousands of people to basically play with your product, and that's that's one of the really satisfying things that that. Uh, goes on in the industry for people who are creative it's a phenomenal thing to do the downside is is that not when you when you spend that much time doing it and i have a full-time job um and brigades the other full-time job um, mm -hmm. i do put a tremendous amount of time into brigade and um the problem is is that one thing has to has to slip um, at least in the hobby side. And that's, that's, you know, some of the gaming I do is typically at conventions and I don't game very much at conventions, but you know, when my kids wow. were younger, I was gaming more, um, because I was trying to get them into doing it. And then, you know, hanging around with a bunch of, a uh, bunch of friends, obviously we would, we would game as well. But, you know, one of the big things I always wanted to do is get, is get my, get my kids into gaming. And, and I was successful at, at doing it. 
Um, they're all, they, you know, the, at least two of two of the boys have, you know, an, an interest in, it. I'm guessing that they will eventually, um, you know, do like what I did get through their, their, their mid, you know, mid twenties and eventually settle down and they'll have something that they remember that they like that, that hopefully they'll go back to. I guess, um, well, what I should have asked earlier is what does a distributor do? What does a distributor do? Well, in the in the when I started this, first of all, it, it's changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. When I started, there were exclusive arrangements that many of the brands would have, um, and that's what everybody did. Everybody who got in the, who who was going to import something from the UK, or and that's primarily primarily where they came from, or say for example, Eureka. Eureka had two of us in the U.S., myself and J&T Miniatures, um, who were responsible for importing. And at that time, you had exclusives. And when you had exclusives, obviously, one of the things that you could you could do um, is then go in and um, sell to stores in a much easier basis. Um, these days, um, what is mo- what has morphed since the internet came came about um, and um, brought people together and obviously, um, you know, websites have gotten better. And, you know, you know, if you remember in the beginning, I mean, I remember my first web store, you know, it was, you know, doing HTML pages with, uh, PayPal buttons. I was, I was one of the first vendors that had PayPal, Mm -hmm. uh, which gave me an advantage. But what a distributor did back then was basically, um, also sold to stores if they wanted to. The problem I had always had um, was stores didn't really have a budget um, for historicals, mm-hmm. you know, and um, because many stores, unless uh, just just like stores have to have have to have enough turnover, and obviously in order to make make a profit on a, on a product, the larger companies, Game Workshop, obviously is the is the big one out there. Has enough has enough clout that people come in just to go and buy their product. Right. People generally don't go to a game store. Didn't go to a game store twenty years ago, fifteen years ago to basically go in and buy a historical product, All right? And so unless unless the there were a few gamers in the area who were really really interested in a range, um, and would go to the store and um, play games, you know, at at the store. I would offer different types of prizes. I would offer the stores different types of, you know, um, incentives to try to do that. But it was terribly, terribly difficult. I think at one time I had I had product in maybe a dozen stores. Um, but the problem was is that they would order a couple hundred dollars worth in the beginning, and then only order like you know a hundred dollars at a time. And it was basically right. orders for the guy, the three guys or four guys that were basically playing in their store, and it right. really wasn't a way to make much profit because the, you know, the, the difference in the, in the, in the amount that you're making, you, you know, if you were making five to 10% after shipping and, you know, bringing the stuff in from the, from the, from the UK, that was a lot, you know, and even, you know, even though that that's not a, a very large effort um, to sell to a store, there still is some effort. You know, and if you're giving some mm-hmm. things away, that profit disappears quite quite rapidly. And I think right. most most um, people who had exclusive arrangements found that out over time. And um, you know, uh, it's 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 difficult when you're bringing bringing product in. I think that the other thing is that shipping times condensed. You know, carriers carriers on a relative basis got got cheaper to bring product in. Um, you know, you were able to get stuff shipped overnight. You were able to get stuff shipped in, you know, three or four days, that type of thing. Post got better. The, you know, the U.S. post got better. And all those things conspired against basically, you know, most companies having exclusive lines. Um, mm-hmm. Now, basically, your exclusive lines might be show related. You know, for these shows, I got these lines. So for the HMGS, GS each East shows, I have exclusive ranges for those shows. Um, you know, to be basically sell at those shows. Um, but, uh, and, um, you know, over the, like I said, over the years, um, it's just, it's just changed. Um, the, um, 
brands that um, you know I like to promote and, and the ones that I've had the most success success with most of them I've been dealing with for you know anywhere from 10 to 15 plus years mm-hmm. uh, for example artisan designs which is which is um, the sculptor Mike Owen who who I worked with um, in, in the early days as far as um, you know sculpting some of my ranges and then um, you know I've, I've dealt with Nick and his North Star ranges um, all throughout his entire business. Um, so, you know, and obviously one of the big successes he's had over the last couple, you know, last few years has been Frostgrave, uh, right. which is his partnership with Osprey. But I participate in all of his um, Nick starters because I'm still, um, you know, we, I started as his North American distributor and I'm still his, his North American partner here. So I participate in all his Nick starters so people can get in on the same things, just ordering direct for me. In fact, I'm waiting for a shipment to clear um, and get here from, uh, from uh, Nick, which is the muskets and tomahawks um, Nick starter. That mm-hmm. um, I carry Copplestone. Um, once Nick took over the manufacturing of cobblestone and, and distribu- distribution of cobblestone um, that became um, available available to me especially since the other person the other business um, shut as as they retired that had the uh, original exclusive uh, rights to it um, mm-hmm. I was one of the first people bringing foreground into the into the states um, via via Nick um, at North Star um, and I have, I have Great War is another one that I have, Great War Miniatures. Um, again, started with Nick. Nick used to, when I, when I was selling my, uh, when, when I started my World War One range, my uh, range, that range used to be cast and molded and, uh, or molded and cast over in England. Um, and Nick was my guy on the ground helping to get that done. Uh, we were using the same same molders and casters that the Perry's used. Um, and that used to be funny because yeah. we used to talk about that, um, you know, the Perry, the Perry's were number one on the list for this, for this uh, molder and caster um, at the time. Artisan was number two or three. And then, and also Mark Sims of Crusader was number two or three. So they went back and forth and I was, and I was always number four. <laughs> So I used to always have to wait, you know, and so when we wound up getting close to salute in April, sometimes fall, uh, Cold Wars would, would fall late, you know, in late March or whatever. And I used, I had to adjust and make sure I was ordering and getting stuff sent to me like in January and February. Otherwise, there was no way I was getting my product because they were they were gearing up for to produce product for salute. Um which, you know, it caused a little bit of a problem one year, the first year, and then after that, it was okay. And then Artisan eventually wound up doing, doing my molding for me because they decided to do it on, them, on their own. Um, so they were doing my molding and casting. And then they decided to stop, and Mike was going to go just – all he was going to do was sculpt, and Nick took over his distribution and stuff. All those molds came over here, got them shipped over here. And they actually arrived in one piece. <laughs> um, you know, think about that—that that, all that IP traveling across the across the ocean and not knowing where it is, and, and right. how much money is involved. You know, as far as investment, um, you know, and obviously you don't send the production molds with the with the master molds and and and, and so on and so forth. And um, I eventually had them had her made an arrangement with the London War Room, which obviously doesn't exist anymore. And Vincent Sharon um, were doing my contract casting for me, and eventually mm-hmm. they, they were doing molding as well. And then one one uh, winter they decided or they decided to um, split, and the business basically in the course of a week went from producing all of my product to basically producing zero, mm-hmm. and had a drive down to Mississippi with my trailer that I use for the show, you know, the whole stock and shows. Um, and, a and, a, uh, a family friend of ours and drive down. Um, and I filled up an entire suburban and my trailer with, and I bought their casting and casting, uh, and molding equipment and put it in the trailer as well as the molds, all of the molds, which filled the entire, 
um, back from from the back of the front seat all the way to the end to the roof of the of the suburban. I think I I think I blew out the automatic um, uh, levelers shock levelers on that oh, trip um, because bet. we were we were so low to the ground and um, drove it back. Um, had my brother was helping me. He was going to do casting um, for me on the side. Um, and that lasted about a month. And then I just decided the heck with it. I'm doing it myself. And mm -hmm. I learned how to cast. I learned how to do it and um, had been doing it ever since. And um, at this point, um, about, let's say it's four years ago in November, I made an, I made a decision that I was going to start having my product outsourced to a mold, uh, a, a mold maker and a, and a caster. And, um, they wanted to make new molds for everything to make sure that everything cast perfectly. They didn't want responsibility for anybody else's molds. And they would, and, and so I've been on a plan, uh, four years into a plan to basically remold everything, whether it needed or not, needed it or not, um, and then have a contract cast. And mm -hmm. everything new in the last four years has been produced by, you know, has been manufactured by them, you know, molded and manufactured by them. And if anybody has seen, not that the product was not cast well before, because I think I did a pretty good job before. Um, but the molds are just even better than they were before. Um, wow. And the product that's coming out is just phenomenal. Um, and anybody who's seen any of the, the pro, you know, any of the new, any of the product in the last, um, you know, I want to say in the last four years is, you know, they, you know, they understand the quality of the product that we're, that we're manufacturing. So, mm -hmm. um, there's basically no flash on anything. Um, you know, very few vent worms. Um, it's just really, really well done. I mean, you could, there is basically very little, I mean, you could, you could, you could clean up a battalion of 40 figures in you know, in probably 15 minutes, if, if that long. Right. And, um, you know, and as we get older um, and you start buying figures, one of the things you know is that your time is money. Right. You know, so you either pay for a quality figure that you can get on the painting table very quickly or you pay or you or, you know, or you're going to be one of those people who's going to sit there and be, you know, filing off mold lines and, and cutting off flash and things like that. And, um, it was one of the things, experiences I had personally, um, you know, then I had decided to, you know, to, before I became a, uh, you know, a manufacturer to do that, uh, start buying better figures. And, um, that's where I sit as far as the, the, the brigade games brand, we produce figures that I believe are a premium brand, premium figure, pre premium brand. And, um, hopefully people seem to enjoy that you know and hopefully we do a great job um now besides figures just even a cursory look at your at your website which is brigadegames.com and link will be in the show notes uh you can't help but notice that you also have a number of uh rule sets and magazines available and some of them are self-published i noticed Correct. um in both PDF and hard copy. How, how did that come about? Um, well, the first, first for foray into it is, is Nick at North Star had, had, had proposed to me that, um, he had been selling Chris Pierce had a, had a back catalog of, of about, I think it was like 22 rule sets, something along those lines. It was, it was a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and those, in, that included, Contemptible Little Armies, um, Heart of Africa. Those are probably the two, um, you know, biggest sellers. Um, Saurian Safari, Mammalian Mayhem. Those are a couple others. But anyway, there's a there's a, a large number of titles, and and he was basically printing these up himself in his house, and binding them, and then sending them out on a you know whenever somebody ordered. Nick was selling was selling for him. 
as well. And I guess had, had he had asked if um, he was interested, if he, you know, he had, he had told Nick he was interested in selling the range. He was getting tired of doing it. And Nick asked me if we were, if we were interested or if I was interested. And um, I told him, sure, um, you know, have, give me, give me Chris's contact information. And um, I, you know, I, I wound up speaking with, with, with him and found out the type of info, you know, type of money he was looking for for us to purchase the range. And what I did was I, I had a, fr- I have a friend, um, who, uh, Rich Johnson, who runs Rat Trap Miniatures at the time, Miniatures and Publishing at the time. Um, and Rich was more of a rules guy, and okay. self-published. And I and I said, hey, I said, Rich, how about if we split it, and we come up with a new imprint, and we basically, you know, look at public taking the books and basically, um, you know, brushing them up and, and, um, you know, and reprinting them and printing them in bulk type of thing that you would do. Um, and obviously print on demand makes it even easier because your, your numbers don't have to be super large. Um, and eventually we decided also to start selling PDFs of them. I was one of the people that was last to be, to be convinced about PDFs. Uh, because of the potential IP theft, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody printing one and then giving that, giving it to somebody else, printing another one and that, and that loss. And, um, that's basically how we started. And then, um, so we had 22 titles of which, you know, at least, you know, half of those we have not done anything with, with as far as, um, had the time to go in and, and, um, make them, um, or, or relay them out and do uh, self-publishing. So, you know, one of the two of us is, is when we get orders are, are the ones who are basically creating and you know, printing them out and binding mm-hmm. them and sending them out. But uh, the popular ones we, you know, we have started and uh, we have a couple in the queue. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a Western set that's in the queue. And then there's also the uh, Saurian Safari and Mammalaya Mayhem, which is in the queue to do. Those will be the next ones that we, we, we get up and, and, and reprint and, and relay out, or re, you know, relay them out better. One of the problems right. with um, some of the rules that are, that are um, made in England is, is the way that they're very verbose and there's not a, you know, it's there. If you ever read something that's self-published over in England, they, they sometimes they tend to be very wandering, and, and there's typically no indexes and things like that. <laughs> um, and the tables are, you know, if you if you saw the word documents, there's you know space, 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 space. Yeah. You know, uh, you know space bar, space bar, that type of thing. Um, you know, and it's not visually appealing, put it that way. Um, the games right. are fine. It, it's the visual appeal. Um, you know, it's almost like the difference between opening up a, an encyclopedia and opening up, um, a, you know, something like a magazine like Sports Illustrated, you know, with all the pictures and, 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 and graphics in it. And um, we, you know, and, and so that was our plan. That's always has been our plan to do that. And we call that imprint Sinister, Sinister Labs. Um, and that's a co- co-owned imprint by, by myself uh, as Brigade Games and Rat Trap Productions. And the second one we bought, which was, I think it's three or four years ago now, um, was Iron Ivan, which was a big historical game, uh, game um, publisher, um, you know, historical game, big historical game publisher in our industry is not very big. Um, only on the onset of, of companies like Warlord has, you know, a larger, you know, war games uh, company developed as far as a, a powerhouse in publishing anyway. Um, Oblory right. clearly is, uh, you know, is a powerhouse on the, on the miniature side. Um, but as far as a publisher, you know, Iron Ivan used to do really, really well. I, I know because I was like their primary um, seller as far as retail right. for a lot of their rules. So you had their disposable hero rules. Um, you had Price of Glory, you know, disposable heroes of World War II. You had, Pri- you had Price of Glory for World War One. You had um, um, uh, uh, this very ground for French and Indian War. Um, and in fact, what we've done is we've taken disposable heroes and we've been marching through the uh, so the supplements and redoing the supplements, 
Um, some of the supplements are out of print. Um, and so we're bringing them back and um, Keith, the original, one of the original team of, right, of, the, of, uh, of um, him and Chalfont that were um, the original authors of most of their works. Um, Keith had one of the things we wanted to do when we, when we signed the deal to purchase the company was basically to have one of the authors available to write additional rule sets or revisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, you know, the first one we started with was Disposable Heroes. Disposable Heroes was about, I think it was uh, 12 years old before we did a revision on it. And over the years, Keith had kept notes on things that he always wanted to change. You know, so one, when we pitched it to him, when we were t- deciding to buy it, he bought in right away. He was very happy because he was going to be able to see it. Um, to come to fruition without the financial risk on his side. And um, obviously he's a paid author um, and he demos um, games at the conventions when we're, when we're doing, uh, we've, we basically have kickstarted most of, most of these, um, these, these additions to the rules now. And um, the next one, we've, so we've done the Disposable Heroes, um, the next one, uh, we've done a couple of the supplements like Blood and Guts for the U.S. We've done the German supplement, Angriff. Um, we're going to be working on most likely the Soviet su- supplement next. Um, okay. But the next rule set that's going to be kickstarted, which will probably be April, but then again, I'm not, it's probably end of April, May, um, you know, with the entire... Uh, world uh, with COVID, I'm trying to. Re- mm-hmm. I, I might. I might rethink when I do the next Kickstarter. But basically, I have a French and Indian War miniatures Kickstarter to do first, and then we're going to be doing this very ground, which is which um, is already written, um, but it's just not laid out yet. Okay. So we're ready. We're ready to go with that. And it's and he's made again. He's made a bunch of adjustments that he wanted to make. Um, and he's basically rewritten the game from, from bottom to top. And, uh, but it, that was always a very popular, um, game for French and Indian war. And obviously that's the hot period right now. And, um, he and I had, had a long talk about it, about expanding the game from basically King Phillips war era, um, you know, which is in the, in the, in, in the, in the late 1600s all the way to um, uh, 18, about 1812. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have army lists in the book um, for all of, all, of that, the, all of the intervening periods, including the American Revolution, you know, which leads me to basically, you know, the, we did a successful Kickstarter a year ago now um, for my Ameri- the start of my American Revolution range. And... Um, Obviously, it would have been great to have rules at the same time um, that that encompassed that. Um, but there's a bunch of great rule sets out there. That's one of the great things about histor- you know, historical miniatures is you're not tied to anything. And um, historical miniatures are, you know, everybody even takes rules that they love and then goes and, you know, modifies them with house rules. Sure. But that's the great part of the part of the uh, historical experience is that is that you're not tied to one thing and you can always adjust them as you feel fit. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely one of the strengths of the hobby that, you know, video gamers and console, you know, console and PC gamers, they don't get to do that for the most part. You know, they they get what they get. And if they don't like it, they can cry on the Internet. But otherwise, you know, they're. they're out of luck. Whereas us analog gamers, not just uh, historical miniatures, war gamers, but also uh, board games, RPGs, what have you, and everything in between. If you don't like something, you can just change it. Right. And that's, that's one of the, you know, there are some people who, you know, all they do is play around with rules or write their own rules. And I, I really appreciate that about the hobby, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I happen to, um, I, I just want to mention, I, I also create, I also publish Fireball Forward. I have exclusive on Fireball Forward, which um, some, some, some gentlemen that I know and have gotten to know over the years, um, very big um, historical gamers. 
it's a it's a World War II war, rule set that's um, quite popular. It's an alternative to Flames of War. Um, mainly played with, you know, a lot of people play it with 15 millimeter, although you can play mm -hmm. 20, 25, 28 millimeter. Um, and then I, and I just started with, um, um, I had the opportunity to publish big, uh, uh, big bloody, uh, Balkan battles for, um, uh, the, the authors and, um, uh, because the original, um, publisher for big bloody battles and big bloody European battles did not have enough time to, to, to handle it at the time. And, um, you know, those are, you know, it's, it's a, sure the Balkans are obscure. They understood it. They understood that they were They were not going to have, you know, the types of sales they, they, they normally see with big bloody battles, but, um, you know, it was a, it was, that's a passion project for them. And I helped lay that out, you know, lay it out with them, um, and then get it published. And, um, Right now, you know, there, from what I understand, there's a couple more books from everybody in the queue, and we're just I'm just waiting for them to to get you know to, to for them to deliver the the items to me so that I can get get uh, on that on its way. Mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned also numerous times uh, starting uh, or working various Kickstarter projects, and and I have to ask, you've done a number of them. How, how many have you done? Mm. at this point i don't know it's probably like i think it's six <laughs> i think i think it's six okay um, but I, I how have, has that had two, how I, has I, that changed your how has that changed your your business when it comes to rules and figure production because your latest your latest one is on kind of pulpy cthulhu 20s and 30s kind of skirmishy figures right yep yeah that just ended on wednesday Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think part of, you know, we, we, we did pretty well. I mean, we obviously, we, we it was the fastest one I've funded it, it funded in five hours. So, you know, that, wow. there, you know, that, and that's some of the advantage of, of, of using Kickstarter, you know, you know, the way I look at it is that, and I think there's a bunch of us smaller players that, that have come to the realization is that, you know, it's almost like, you walk down a street and you, you know, and it, and you're like, you have, um, attention deficit disorder. There's so many different miniatures around mm -hmm. uh, for a customer. And, and the problem is you look this way, you look that way, you know, there's a, there's a new brand popping up, a new figure popping up, a new range popping up. How do you cut through all of that noise to actually, you know, bring a, bring a range to fruition and get to the break even point as fast as possible. Because most of us want to take that 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 investment money and go and create a new range after that, or expand a range after that. You know, there's only so much money you can have tied up in in a range. And obviously, if a range isn't successful for a longer period of time, or it takes a you know a year for something to happen, that money's just basically sitting there while you're going over and over, you know, and trying to trying to sell more and more figures. So Kickstarter is an interesting concept because basically instead of say paying for advertising over, you know, X number of months or a year while you're waiting to break even, um, you're basically taking the hit through a, through a fee and they're giving you exposure. That's the way I look at it. And, right. and um, if I can be successful and if I've done my math correctly, um, I can at least break even and that's that's always the target is to, to attempt to break even um or at least fund through most of it um to get my money back now with the cthulhu range um it's probably one of the ones that i've invested in that range over the course of about a year so it's a couple figures here a couple figures there over the year building different things over the course of a year and typically, at this point, I do that with 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 several different topics at once, and um, you know, and, and it slowly takes shape. And when it gets to a point where I feel that I can, I, I have the time to run a Kickstarter, uh, because they are a time suck. Let me tell you, don't mm -hmm. don't think that it's easy. You earn every penny that you might make in <laughs> in it in time that you invest. And right. uh, most of us don't have the ability or the, the, the strength of um, broad-based, you know, um, 
you know, a broad-based audience that people know that many, you know, you know that many people, we're not going to do a million dollars. We're not going to do a hundred thousand dollars. You know, we're going to do 10, 20 or $30,000. And the thing is, is that it's very easy if you don't do your math, it's very easy for something in a Kickstarter to get away from you. Um, so planning is, is essential. We, you know, you, there's, everybody has a story who's dealt with Kickstarter, probably about either knowing somebody who's been, who's gotten, who's gotten, um, involved in a Kickstarter in the product that mm-hmm. got delivered or a bad, you know, knows, knows a story about a company, which basically has gone under, um, trying to deliver something. And, and obviously right. I have a 20 year reputation and I, and I, you know, I want to make sure that I'm going to always come out. Um, of the Kickstarter on the positive end. If I, if I don't fund, and there's been, I think, one book and, and, and one range that did not fund. Um, and sometimes it's as, it's as simple as the time of year. You know, not picking mm-hmm. the time of year or the other historical Kickstarters or, or the other competing Kickstarters at the same time or around the same time. Sometimes that's part of it too. Sure. Um, but the two that didn't, we eventually released anyway. Um, cause we had pro- product most of the way through the cycle already, as far as, as far as making it, you know, in the ri- originally people were doing it and not having figures made, you know, and then all of a sudden it became, you had figures made cause you needed something to sell. You wanted to show a really good paint job, so on and so forth. Right. Um, but that, that for most of us takes a lot more time. So that, so it, you either, you either do, it takes a lot more time and a lot more money, um, so you're investing even more time and more money. Um, I have a couple, I have, let's see, one, two, three, four. I probably have four more that I'm going to do this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've decided that I'm going to do them back to back to back to back. Um, right now I'm waffling a little bit. I might push my French and India war one out a little bit until we get, until mm-hmm. everybody gets through this COVID thing. Cause I think that the attention span is not there right now. Right. Um, and obviously everybody has higher priorities. Um, so, um, but in the meantime, I'm still having figures made, you know, so whether the figures, if the figures don't reach a, say a stretch goal, um, I'll, I usually, what I do, like what I'm going to do with the Cthulhu one, we had, a, I have a bunch of stretch goals that we did not hit, but we did hit four. Um, we came close to a fifth one. Um, but, um, I have a bunch of those other figures and what I'm going to do is I, as people have already asked me, I'm putting it in the survey that'll go out and people will be able to order them. And if they, if enough people order them out of the 150 something backers that we got, if enough people order them. I'll put them in production molds and get them done. Um, right. You know, so for me, it's a, it's a, it's also positive because if they, you know, a lot of people want specific ones and if I can get it done, I'll do it. I just want to get them out. I want to get the figures out there. Cause I've, like I said, most of the investments been done over the years, over the last year. And, um, probably there's, there's probably half of the Kickstarter and a bunch of stuff people didn't even see that basically, um, you know, have been done in the last probably three or four months. Now, right. the other thing with Kickstarter that's interesting is, is that you can, you can, you, you know, you can have a Kickstarter, it can run, um, but a lot of sales come post Kickstarter and that's, that's only a bonus because you can do late backers and, and, and have things which, which don't even have to go through Kickstarter. You can offer and have a, have a link say on your website or, or through backer kit or one of these other, other um, fee-based programs that can help you. And um, I've always done that. And I've probably gained another 30% just on the, you know, in sales, just on the, on the add-ons, which is fantastic. Mm. Obviously then it allows you to go and have a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, stuff made. And that's what I did with the uh, American revolution one is that we wound up getting um, continentals, British light infantry and, and Hessians, um, done. And, and almost all of that is, uh, broken even at this point, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it sounds like you're definitely a busy guy and you're definitely looking to the future, uh, whatever <laughs> that may hold aside from the Kickstarters, what, what's next for brigade games? Do you think? Um, well, I think that 
personally, I think that the only way I'm going to fund stuff is probably do doing Kickstarters. That, 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 mm-hmm. That's the first funding range is through Kickstarters because um, it's just the, 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 the positives outweigh the negatives as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Um, I'll tell you that the remolding project, you know, like I said, we're not remolding because the molds are bad. We're remolding so I don't have to do the casting myself anymore. Just for cold, just for the target of Cold Wars, um, I have 30 um, packs of product that basically went from me casting them to uh, them being contract cast. So from, I mean, you can imagine the expense of doing that. And I, what I've been trying to do is do it um, on a monthly basis is have a, have a budget and try to hit that budget every month. Um, as far but it's also depending upon how busy the mold maker is mm-hmm. um, but um, right now he has um, let me think French and Indian greens more more things for the Cthulhu um, range Cthulhu, you know Cthulhu and, and pulp, pulp uh, adventurers range um, and I'll be doing more World War one I'll be doing more Russian Civil War um, those are the other um, two things and more Napoleonics and American Revolution. So those are all okay. the things that are high, you know, high on the list right now. As a community, given the current climate, I, I definitely think it's important to support the small business uh, owners like Lon out there. So I, this is, you know, this is my pitch for you, Lon. Go, go and hit the show notes, go to brigadegames.com or I've got the full link in the, in the show notes and definitely show them some love. Cause it's, I think we're all going to need it and we're all going to need toys to paint while we're in our various states of shelter. Right. So yeah, kind of like a, it kind of reminds me of nine 11 in, in a way. Yeah. In a way. Um, yeah. Those were, those are some interesting days and obviously we're still feeling the effects of that. And I got to think we're going to feel the effects of this for some time to come. So, well, that's not exactly the cheeriest note to end on, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess we can bring it back around to something cheery. I'm, I'm very excited to hear about the, about what's coming up in the future. I, folks really, you, you do need to check out brigade Games site, you know, just about anything that you can want. He's got, um, not much ancients, but not much medieval. But and, you know, and you want to you want to know why? Um, I've never been success. No matter what I brought in for for ancients, has never been. I've never been successful at. Hmm. For some reason in this country, um, my personal feeling is that old glory's got a lock on the ancients, and I don't. And and um, I think that they have some really good, really good ranges. But I, I think it's because of the number of figures you need, typically the number of figures you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if you're doing old style gaming where you need tons of figures, then that, they, you know, then they certainly yeah. are economical. Sure. Um, you know, I don't carry a lot of plastics. You know, the plastics I carry are, are frost gray, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, Napoleonic plastics have never been popular with, with, with my, you know, group of customers. Um, and I've never been successful with any of the other plastics. And I, and the other thing is that they're, I don't know if it's because they're mostly made overseas, but most of them don't fit in the shipping boxes real well. You know, so it winds up, you don't wind up making very much money on a, on a box of fit, you know, selling boxes of figures to people because basically a lot of it gets eaten up with shipping. And, you know, if somebody's ordering a $20 box and it costs them, you know, 12 bucks to ship it, you know, that's not real economical. No. Um, You know, that's why getting them at a show sometimes is an easier way to do it. But like I said, I, you know, if I can't sell it during the course of the year, you know, selling it in the 30% of the volume I do at a show doesn't make much sense to me. Right. Right. All right. So, Lon, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh to talk to me here i i've been wanting to talk to you for a long time i'm glad we were able to finally get synced up and and make it work uh i really look forward like i said earlier i'm really looking forward to to see what what comes of brigade games in the future and i i wish you all the continued success that that you're that you're due well i love you i love your podcast and um 
that you know everybody should always sub to sub should subscribe to it the veteran war gamer um jay look forward to seeing you sometime in the future um yeah i'd, I'd over, love to over a out. couple beers again or a bunch of beer oh absolutely yeah <laughs> one or just one just one right just one yeah tell everybody it's only one <laughs> that's right lon again thank you very much i appreciate it greatly and folks as always if the war gaming you're having isn't any fun you make it fun that is all Arnold 2020. He's a courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.